G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As you know, there are a lot of sceptics who find it difficult to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Then there's the argument over just how old the universe is. Uh, Is it billions of years old? Or is it much younger, according to a more literal view of the biblical account? Well, these are important questions, aren't they? And it appears to take an awful lot of faith to accept one and reject the other. We're going to open our talkback lines on the Christian view that addresses the weaknesses in the idea that the universe made itself. Uh, It appears to be common sense that something as substantial as the universe could not have arisen from nothing. Well, when pioneering satellite engineer Dr. Mark Harwood was coming to town, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to explore some of these deeper questions with him. Mark played a key role in the development of Australia's national satellite system. He's now retired from the aerospace industry, where he was general manager of strategy and planning for the Optus satellite business. These days, Dr. Mark Harwood is a satellite engineer, now speaker, writer and scientist for Creation Ministries International. And Mark's in the studio with us. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You might like also to leave a comment on Facebook. Not everybody wants to ring in, but you can make make a comment or ask a question on Facebook. Uh, Dr. Mark Harwood, welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's a great privilege to be here. Mark, you've been hearing the news about the passing of Billy Graham just Mm. yesterday, and I know that he has something of a place in your history as well. As I've been saying, there are so many leaders who've been affected by Billy Graham. Tell us your story. Well, it goes all the way back to the 1959 Crusades here in Australia, Neil. Um, I was just 11 years old at the time. So I guess if our listeners are good at mathematics, they've worked out how old I am. But anyway, I lived in Adelaide at the time, and uh, my parents took me along to the Billy Graham crusade, and that was the occasion on which I committed my life to the Lord. I can remember it so vividly, sitting up in those grandstands and uh, Billy making the appeal for people to come forward, and I sat there. I was actually rooted to the chair, you know. I, I, I wanted to go, but there was a recurring theme in my mind which said, you are not good enough you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And I sat and sat and I thought, well, I know I'm not good enough, but I'm going anyway. And of course, that's the key thing, isn't it? It's what Christ has done for us. He was good enough for our salvation. So you made a decision on that night uh, to put your life in the hands of Christ, uh, to experience something of an encounter with God in that moment. In that moment, that's right. I lived in a Christian household, but that was the point at which I really made a conscious decision to follow Jesus. 
And then you pursued a science career, That's uh, right. studying engineering, and uh, we talked about your aerospace career in the introduction there. Uh, of course, when we talk about these issues of creation and evolution, uh, how did all of that start to bubble along in your thinking and, uh, you know, sorting out through, uh, you know, the facts from the, uh, from the speculations and the scepticism? How did that work for you? Well, it's, it's really been quite a journey, and it is for a lot of people. In fact, I suppose it is for everybody in one way or another. But for me, because I had a scientific bent and I wanted to pursue science and uh, studied at university and engineering and so on, I just assumed that God must have used evolution to create. It seemed to be some kind of a, a you know, logical conclusion because I thought the evidence for evolution was irrefutable. Uh, there it all was. How could you say the textbooks were wrong? These scientists do amazing things. We have all this fabulous technology that we use today. and So how can you argue against that? And yet the Bible tells me something very, very different. So as a young person growing up, going through high school and university, I kind of held these, um, if you like, what I now realize are opposing views in my head um, in some sort of a, a dissonance, I guess. But I didn't think too much about it. Now, what was interesting, and it connects back to Billy Graham again, after my postgraduate studies, I was uh, away at a uh, church camp and I was reading a book by Billy Graham called Peace with God. I think he published it in about 1952. And one of the early chapters is on sin. And in that chapter, Billy Graham said, Adam was no gibbering caveman. He was fully mature, developed, and so words to that effect. And uh, the point being that he made a conscious decision to rebel against God. And I remember at that time the Lord spoke to me and said, do you believe that? It wasn't an audible voice, but a very strong impression. I remember thinking, yes, I do believe that. And then I started to think through, well, hang on a minute. If Adam's rebellion against God is what brought death and suffering into the world, that means it could not have been there before Adam. And if it wasn't there before Adam... That means that the whole evolutionary story is inconsistent with the basic gospel message. And for me, it was like a theological conversion, if you will. And isn't it the case that so many Christian believers today somehow or other have a foot in the two camps? Absolutely. Uh, this idea mm. of synthesizing, uh, bringing together the two ideas and saying, well, I don't want to be embarrassed if I have a conversation with my scientific friends and somehow or other say, oh, God created and uh, Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. Uh, and then they want to have this uh, foot in the other camp. But in fact, it does affect their... Uh, the strength of their faith, uh, even yeah. even the credibility of their understanding of the Bible, if they don't make some sort of definitive decision to stand on one side or the other. Absolutely, and it affected me. So as a young man, as a Christian, uh, I, I was a Christian, but I believed in evolution, but I, I was confused, and I couldn't share my faith effectively through high school and university. And uh, just exactly the challenge you raised, you see, if people were to come to me and say, Oh, so you're a Christian, Mark, or do you believe all that stuff in the Bible, you know, about God creating in six days? I would have had no answer. And the classic question that I couldn't answer was, if God is a good God, why is there death and suffering in the world? Why doesn't he just fix everything up? Now, I had no answer to those fundamental questions. And in fact, even more fundamentally, as I was growing up, um, I, I went to my church leaders because I did not understand why Christ went to the cross for me. I would reason, you know, why couldn't Jesus have just come to the earth and lived a good life and then been transfigured up into heaven? Why the agony of the cross? 
And sadly, my church leaders could not explain it because they too believe that God used evolution to create. So it made me an impotent Christian. I couldn't share my faith effectively, but that encounter that I had after my postgraduate work started me on a journey of of research and reading, and I discovered to my great delight that not only could I believe what the Bible says right from the beginning, and I could because the evidence all supports it, interestingly enough, and we'll talk more about that later, but that I should. And the reason I should is that the reason Jesus came was to pay the price for my sin, and the price of my sin was death. That's what came when Adam rebelled against God. So if you take that away, suddenly you have no credible or comprehensible reason for Jesus suffering on the cross for me. I want to open our talkback lines and we'll open them fairly early. Uh, You might like to participate in this conversation today uh, because there are some significant issues that come out of where you stand uh, if you believe that God is the creator or if you believe that the universe created itself and somehow or other we are an accident, uh, that we are a random set of of particles or uh, molecules or whatever it might be that all of a sudden came together and made us what we are. And of course, these days we are a secular society in Australia. That's a word that people like to use, and I'm not always as comfortable with that if I appreciate what secular means. But because we are secular, it would show us that somehow or other in our schools and in our universities, there is an abandoning of this idea that God is the creator, an abandoning of our Christian roots, and it leaves us with only this option of the universe created itself uh, for what children and what university students are being taught. Uh, This is a big challenge, isn't it, Mark Harwood? It absolutely is a big challenge. And so you really, if you like, in a sense, there are three camps. There are those who believe God's word and what it says, that God spoke the universe into being in just six days, just like Genesis tells us. The other end of the scale is the very secular view, as you said. By the way, secular means, in effect, that we exclude God from the, from the equation, which means, by definition, it's atheist, atheistic. So secular is really a synonym for atheism. We don't often might connect that. But the third is the middle position that I used to adopt, which was, well, maybe God used the processes of evolution. But of those three, there's only one that actually makes sense of the universe around us, and that's what God tells us that he actually did. Now, Mark, let's come to some of the issues with the universe. The universe is so large uh, that, you know, time frames uh, come into question here uh, and the age of the universe. Uh, people talk about this whole issue of starlight time and uh, takes so many years, uh, you know, in fact, more years than what the uh, young earth idea of a biblical idea uh, uh, has. Uh, you know, it takes more years for the light to get here from some of these distant stars. So how can all of this make sense? Uh, so when you're talking to people about how you make sense of some of the inconsistencies, what's the first thing you like to encourage people with? Well, I always start from what the scriptures say, and the sort of line of uh, argument I would use is this. Um, if you were in a courtroom um, and you have a, um, a prosecution who looks at the evidence and he interprets all the evidence as meaning that the accused is guilty, I mean, that's his job. But then the defence lawyer stands up and he looks at exactly the same evidence and he interprets it to mean that the accused is innocent. So you have the same evidence but it's being interpreted in radically different ways and that's the situation that each of us is in when we look at the world around us. So the evidence we see in the physical world 
is interpreted according to what we actually already believe. And so for the person who has this change in mindset and starts to look at the evidence from a different angle, uh, what they're uh, technically doing is not necessarily abandoning their idea of what the other side was or what they understood, but they've added a dimension to that. And so it's because there's a certain sense here, and what I'm getting at is sometimes when people are critical of Christians, they assume that Christians are ignorant of the arguments about the universe yeah. and uh, what the evolutionist uh, type atheist person might believe. But there's not necessarily an ignorance. It's a choice to look at the evidence in a in different a, way. In a different light. That's right. You change your worldview. It's like changing your glasses. You know, you put on a pair of glasses and you look at a scene in a certain way. And what we are encouraging people to do is to take those glasses off, the secular glasses that say there is no God, that's the fundamental assumption, and put on Christian biblical glasses and start with God's eyewitness account of what he actually did. In fact, it's a good point. Let me pick up on that because I I didn't really complete the courtroom story. You see, in the courtroom, if there was an eyewitness present at the scene of the crime, then their testimony carries a great deal of weight in determining whether the accused is in fact guilty or innocent, particularly if they're a reliable eyewitness. Now, the Bible is like God's eyewitness account of what he actually did at the beginning. So here we have an account that says the all-powerful, all-loving, all-merciful, gracious God spoke the universe into being and he's recorded for us exactly what he did. He took six days to do it. He rested on the seventh. He laid down a pattern for mankind. uh, And, you know, here we are today observing a seven-day week. So I start with the eyewitness account. And then I say... Well, does the evidence that we see in the world around us make sense? And that's where there's a whole fascinating discussion that goes on because the evidence that is presented to our culture today through TV documentaries and science curricula in high schools and universities and the like all begins with the secular assumption, the atheistic assumption, that there's no God. And so when you apply those glasses to interpreting the evidence, you get a completely different set of explanations. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Good to have you along with us. It is the Friday edition of 2020. Dr. Mark Harwood is our guest. A couple of Facebook comments contributing to our conversation today. Uh, A comment from Mike in Beaconsfield in Tasmania who says, DNA is information from an intelligent designer. It requires faith either way to conclude the merits of cosmology, how and why the universe et al. exists regards. Thank you, Mike. Another Facebook comment from Vicky who says, in the beginning there was nothing and then it exploded. Laughing, I prefer God's version. Uh, God's version, big bangs, in the beginning, nothing exploding. These are the sorts of things that uh, these are the sorts of uh, vocabulary that come up in this discussion, Mark. Yeah, indeed, it does, and we, we just need to be a little careful because um, Christians also believe that there was nothing and then there was everything. But of course, the Christian believes that there's a causal agent, and that causal agent is God, who spoke the universe into being, and He, of course, is eternal and pre-exists the physical space-time matter universe. But the atheist uh, or the secularist believes that nothing became absolutely everything all by itself. So there is no causal agent and that of course requires enormous faith because that's something that we never observe in observable science. 
Um, nothing never produces something. In fact, it's a philosophical nonsense. But a far more credible position from the Christian's uh, point of view that there was the causal agent of God who spoke the universe into being. So credibility-wise, uh, as Christians, we don't need to be in some ways no. feeling inferior or somehow threatened because we've actually got the more substantial Absolutely. argument. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk uh, through some of these evidences. And I guess we're talking about evidences for a young solar system. Yep. Interesting to talk about evidences for a young universe, but we actually haven't been able to get out much farther than our solar system. So uh, with what we do know, with what science can deal with, uh, rattle through a few of these evidences for us, Mark. Okay. Let, let, perhaps if I could just come back to a topic you raised in, the, uh, in your opening remarks there, Neil. You talked about how do we explain the distant starlight that appears to have come to us from thousands of millions of light years away uh, if the biblical time scales for creation of just a few thousand years are correct and this is one of those issues that has been a stumbling block for a lot of people they put it up as i think more an excuse than a reason to not believe what god has said in his word Um, and it's not an easy one to answer but there's a couple of keys that i would give listeners and then i'd invite them to actually go and research the topic on on our website because you'll find much more information on it And I think one of the keys in this is what's called time dilation. Now, when Einstein formulated his laws um, and his equations of relativity 100 years ago now, um, he he revealed from that that space, time and matter are all interdependent. You can't have any one of those without the other two. And if you uh, distort space, for instance, it tells us in the Bible and over a dozen different places that God stretched out the heavens, and if that occurred on the fourth day of the creation week, then you're causing massive distortion to space, which will distort time. And also, as space is stretched out, it says God created the sun, moon, and the stars on that fourth day, which is an enormous amount of matter. So you have uh, tremendous changes in the uh, matter content of the universe and therefore gravitational fields. Now, time gets dilated by both gravitational effects and by cosmological effects stretching out the fabric of space. So what can happen is, and there are different cosmological models that have been built by creationists to uh, endeavour to explain this, what can happen is that the outer edges of the cosmos, a clock Uh, out there on that fourth day of creation as God stretches out the heavens would be running much, much faster than an earthbound clock, uh, billions of times faster. So you can, in fact, have vast elapsed periods of time at the outer reaches of the cosmos within one Earth day. Now, that's not one of these um, intuitive things because we don't make a connection between space and time. We see them as all independent. But there's actually experimental verification of Einstein's equations. So that's just a little hint of some of the keys to understanding this problem. So rather than being a barrier to faith, we are much wiser to say, well, God, you tell us in your word that you made a vast universe and you did it in just six days. And I choose to believe you, even though I may not understand all the physics behind it. And that would be the case, wouldn't it? That everyone is on a learning curve journey. That Mm. uh, there are those new Christians who are interested in science and they'll have a, a long a journey, a learning curve, and understanding some of these things. As uh, we hear you sharing your heart as an aerospace engineer, appreciating that that is an evidence for the possibility that 
when people talk about the billions of years, there's an evidence and an understanding there that we can apply uh, through this different lens, this different That's view, right. uh, right. appreciating that God is, in fact, uh, credible in what he Absolutely. says about a young creation. More evidences to come. Let's take a call. Uh, Jan is on the line from Perth. Hello, Jan. Welcome along. Good morning, Mark and Neil. Good morning. Um, yes, I, I, I'm uh, interested in this as well. Um, Mark, my experience is similar to yours. I, I was about the same age with during the Billy Graham crusade, and I distinctly remember that coming to Perth. Uh, <coughs> Now, um, thinking about um, um, her creation, I, I just want to cast a thought for um, evolution. I, I just can't get... A, I'm, I'm an avid admirer of David Attenborough's shows. I think they're wonderful. Mm. And yet, I'm appalled when he is so blind. He keeps talking about a wonderful design, but is blind to the need for a designer. And I keep on thinking... David, you are contradicting a proven scientific law uh, demonstrated by Louis Pasteur, who demonstrated that life cannot arise in a sterile environment. When right. David Attenborough talks about all these nutrients coming together like a soup in the seas and the proteins and amino acids and came and, uh, and life arose, and Louis Pasteur laid the foundation for our whole canning industry. There is lots of sterile canned soup, and I believe there's not one evidence of life arising. And, and that, that's um, true, yes, it is indeed true. Um, and uh, you're right that Louis Pasteur formulated what we now call the law of biogenesis that says that life cannot arise, well, put it this way, life only arises from life. And in fact, uh, any indication or suggestion that life arose from non-life is simply not supported by any experimental evidence. But it has to be, if you like, an item of faith for the evolutionist because at some stage or other in the past, inanimate chemicals had to assemble themselves into the first self-replicating cell. But there is absolutely no evidence of how that might have happened. You know, David Attenborough was once asked this question, you know, why don't you give credit to Almighty God? And uh, he gave a very interesting answer, and I'd, I'd just like to share it with you. And he said, when creationists talk about God creating, they always instance hummingbirds or orchids, sunflowers and beautiful things. But I tend to think instead of a parasitic worm that is boring through the eye of a boy sitting on the bank of a river in West Africa, a worm that's going to make him blind. And I ask them, are you telling me that the God you believe in, who you also say is an all-merciful God who cares for each one of us individually, are you saying that God created this worm that can live in no other way than in an innocent child's eyeball? Because that doesn't seem to me to coincide with a God who's full of mercy. So Attenborough sees beauty and design in the world around him, but he also sees suffering and death. And this is one of the big challenges for Christians. We need to be able to give an answer to this problem. So Attenborough's response is to say, well, I reject this God. I don't believe that he exists, which is not actually very logical if you think about it. But this was the issue that I faced as a young man. Oh, by the way, he's wrong about the life cycle for that little worm. It can live, live in other places than a little boy's eye. But um, he is right that there is suffering and death. But 
we have to ask ourselves, why? And, you know, the Bible makes it very clear. God created a very good creation right at the beginning, but it was Adam's actions that brought suffering and death into the world. And Paul says in Romans 5.12, you know, um, that uh, therefore... Uh, just as sin entered the world through one man, and that one man, of course, was Adam, uh, and death through sin. So Paul makes it very clear, death came through Adam, and that's why Jesus came for us. Jan, thank you so much for that. Okay. Uh, I just was thinking also of the verse in Romans 8 where it says the whole of creation is groaning because of... Um, mankind's fall. That's right. And, yeah. and awaiting for Christ's redemption. Jan Absolutely. from Perth, thanks for your great insight today here on 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, just before we leave David Attenborough aside, uh, I do note that when I've watched uh, some wonderful programs uh, that David Attenborough is the narrator for, uh, that I'm sure that he's not writing the scripts for all of those. In fact, uh, there's a bunch of no doubt, uh, mm. journalistic scientists who are writing the script, oh, sure. and they've got uh, they've got their uh, evolutionary theory down pat. And of course, uh, David Attenborough becomes the narrator, and then he's credited with all of the things that's said. Uh, so it really is. Uh, there's a there's a whole not conspiracy, but uh, there's a whole evolutionary science behind the people who are writing these programs. Any thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, that's true. And and what you see there is a kind of a groupthink. Um, you know, we're in the club, as it were, and it's very hard to break out of that club without uh, suffering a lot of ridicule. And many scientists have found this uh, if they actually realise that, well, hang on a minute, this evolutionary story really does not stack up. Um, there must be some sort of uh, a designer that is behind the universe, even though they may not be Christians. To suggest such a thing can often mean that their careers are terminated. Uh, They they don't get published and uh, they can be discriminated against significantly. Okay, just a couple of minutes out from Vision National News uh, to reflect on a call. Jenny from Bunbury rang through, couldn't stay on the line, has a dilemma. She's a science teacher and is required to teach evolution as fact. Uh, She hates doing it because she believes God to be the creator. So how can she meet her obligations according to the education curriculum that she's compelled to teach and also uh, teach an understanding of faith? Any thoughts on uh, the dilemma that science teachers face, Mark? Yeah, that is a significant dilemma. And uh, what I suggest to people is that uh, you explain that this is in the curriculum and this is what they have to learn to be able to pass their exams. But, you know, on the way through, you can expose some of the flaws in the evolutionary thinking. Um, You can perhaps say that uh, you don't actually believe this. You can point out that uh, things that are in in the past, historical events, are outside of observational science. So this is not really science so much as a belief about the past. So there are a number of lines like that. I recommend having a look on creation.com. You'll find some an excellent article by Taz Walker that addresses this very question. Before we take another call, Mark, uh, let me come to some of these evidences that we were talking about from our solar system, evidences Mm. that the biblical account uh, is true and correct. Uh, We haven't got time to enlarge on a whole lot of them, but uh, rattle through some of these for us so listeners can take their own initiative and perhaps do some more research themselves. Sure, sure. Look, yeah, we are told so often that the evidence for the uh, vast timescales of the evolutionary story are just everywhere and and we sort of feel that it must be 
notably in astronomy, that that seems that the evidence is irrefutable of the vast ages. And I talked a little earlier on about that time dilation issue. But in our solar system, what we can observe are things which are simply not consistent with the idea that the solar system has been around for four and a half billion years, which is the usual story. For instance, there's a little moon that orbits uh, the planet Jupiter. It's called Io, and uh, it has the most massive volcanoes on it of uh, anywhere in our solar system. And it's a little tiny moon. It's about a quarter of the size um, um, of, uh, of our Earth, and it, uh, uh, but it dissipates a huge amount of heat. Now, the problem is this, that there's no mechanism that's been figured out for all this heat to still be there. If it is old as four and a half billion years, it should have cooled down by now. It should be just a, a cold, stony, dead wasteland. But instead of that, it's uh, releasing an enormous amount of heat through these volcanic eruptions. Now, some of it can be explained by tidal mechanisms and distortion of the little moon, but only about a tenth. The rest of it has got to come from somewhere. So that places an upper limit of only thousands of years on the age of the little moon Io. Uh, We look at Saturn's rings, for instance. They're they're brilliant. They uh, are clean and shiny, and they're very, very fragile. And astronomers have figured out that the rings just can't survive for billions of years. So they figured out, well, maybe they somehow or other have formed recently. Well, I would agree. They probably did form recently, I reckon, about 6,000 years ago, because that's the time scale that the Bible would suggest. And if they'd been around for 4.5 billion years, well, firstly, they probably wouldn't be around. But if they were somehow, they'd be very dirty, having accumulated lots of dust and meteorites and all the rest of it, instead of being bright, shiny and crystal clear as they, uh, as they are. Um, there's another lovely one. There's a, a cluster of little moons that uh, orbit the planet Uranus, and they're quite close. There's a group of 13 of these that are so close, they're spaced just over a period, a distance of about 10,000 kilometres. They have orbits that are some hundreds of thousands of kilometres, but just 10,000 apart, which means that they move close to each other on a regular basis. Now, the astronomers have figured out that they should have collided, their orbits would have interfered with each other, and in fact, they believe that uh, within a million years, they will probably all not exist. But how could they have been there for four and a half billion years and still be there? So the evidence is they're just recent. So there is lots of evidence in our own solar system. And who would have thought that Saturn's rings being bright and shiny and clean might be an evidence for a young universe. Well, we are taking calls, 1-800-316-316. There's plenty more evidence uh, to be able to talk about, uh, but we want to get as much uh, to air as we can uh, from callers, and there's lots and lots of Facebook comments. We won't get through all of them, but let's hear from Kath, who is in the Snowy Mountains. Hello, Kath. Welcome along. Oh, hello there. Kath, what are your thoughts on our conversation today? Now, I just have a question. Uh, it's a theoretical question. Um, could poss- quite possibly be a stupid question. Um, in creation, when Adam was created, uh, suppose there was no fall and suppose everyone lived happily ever after. Well, my question would be the world would be overpopulated and if the animals weren't preying on each other, we'd be overrun with, you know, animals and insects and all these sorts of things. So, uh, but of course, I suppose God knew the fall would always happen anyway, but it's just, you know, sometimes you get thinking about these stupid ideas and you think, well, if there was no death and there was no sin, 
the population would just keep growing. And if people didn't die, mm. how how could you physically yeah. possibly everybody here? Kath, I'm excited that you're actually thinking through those issues. It's wonderful. What were your thoughts for Kath, Mark? Yeah, look, that's an interesting question, is it? I mean, obviously, as you've recognised, it is a hypothetical because that's not what happened and God did foreknow the future. But it's interesting, we read um, about uh, this guy Enoch in, um, uh, he was the seventh, uh, I think, in the line from Adam, and he lived for just a, a mere 365 years and then the Lord took him away because he walked with God. And, uh, you know, it may well have been that, um, and this, of course, is also hypothetical, had there been no fall, then that might have been exactly what happened. But we have also observed in animal populations, when they're in a confined area, the actual reproduction rate uh, automatically compensates and reduces. So, look, who knows? But uh, as we do know, what actually happened was Adam did sin and that did bring suffering and death into the world. Kath from the Snowy Mountains, thank you so much for your question and our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Bill in Victoria. Hello, Bill. Welcome along. Oh, hello there. Thank you very much for your program. Really enjoying it. Um, I'm not much of a, um, much of a sort of scientific type person, but, and I don't know whether I've got the theory right, but would it be right to say that evolution is, deci- uh, is, is defined as nonsensical, forced adaptation for survival? And, and if, that defin- if, if that definition is correct, then, then looking at in any form of um, the smallest molecule, at no stage in, in, in history can we see anything nonsensical about it. God's hand seems to be on, have been on, on the smallest molecule type thing. So I'm not sure about the definition. I'm not sure, but it, it seems that God's always been involved and there's nothing nonsensical at any stage in, in known history. Yeah, you're certainly right with that, uh, with your last comment there. But I, I would uh, tend to define evolution in the, uh, the capital E evolution sense. That is an attempt to explain the existence of the entire universe in purely natural terms. In other words, excluding any thought or uh, possible access of a, a divine hand in the creation. In other words, it's an atheistic attempt to explain the existence of everything. Sometimes evolution is um, defined as being changes in living things, but that's not actually evolution because I mean, we can observe changes in living things. What that is is the term that you used. It's adaptation, and uh, adaptation is actually a downhill process, but evolution requires an uphill process, uh, ever-increasing amounts of information required to go from simple to complex. So I think I'd prefer the, the definition that says it's the attempt to explain everything in the universe in purely natural terms. Okay, thank you so much to Bill from Victoria. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Uh, comments on Facebook too. Uh, let me just come to one from Graham in Western Australia who says, Wow, you're creating new pathways in my mind about early man. I've always, since being saved, wanted to believe that Adam was the first human, but, uh, let me just uh, catch up where we're at here, Uh, but the thing that still taunts my mind is the prehistoric cave drawings. I have belief in yours and Billy Graham's non-gibbering Adam concept, so the cave drawings, which are found all over the world, including Australia, uh, however, the inadequacies in cave drawings are just 
that there are not thousands of years of drawings. Maybe it's just one Ken Doan travelling the world painting in caves, which don't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Uh, can you shed some light on this, please? Uh, can you make sense of that uh, that question? Yeah, look, that's a pretty interesting question. And, uh, you know, we hear so much about uh, prehistoric man and so on. But if the Bible is true, there are really only five days of prehistory. They're the first five days of creation. And Adam and Eve are made on the sixth day. So there is actually no such thing as uh, as prehistoric man. Uh, I believe Adam and Eve were indeed the the first human beings. But as we read through the biblical narrative, we come to an interesting account in Genesis chapter 11. And there are just nine verses that describe the event called the Tower of Babel. Now, God comes down after the flood and instructs mankind to go out over the, to spread out over the whole of the earth. But of course, we disobey amazingly. So he comes and uh, confuses the languages of the people. And that forces the distribution of mankind out and over the world. Now, let's think about that event. You see, up until the day before, everybody could communicate with everybody else. There was just one language on the face of the earth. Can you imagine what it would be like? You know, you wake up in the morning, you have breakfast, you head off to work. Maybe you were working on the tower that day. And people that you could talk to yesterday, you now cannot. It would be the most stunning event. There would be confusion, fear, I can imagine even violence breaking out. In the midst of it, you hear someone speaking that you can understand. You'd go to them and say, what's going on? And then I can imagine how small groups of common language would quickly form and then spread out. They'd just get out of the place as fast as they could. So now you have a problem. You have a population with high technology. They were building a massive building. Now they're removed from that. Now, if you put me out in some wilderness place in the middle of Australia, all my knowledge about uh, aerospace and design of spacecraft would be completely useless. I would be focused solely on finding a source of water and food and then shelter. And one great place for sheltering is caves. So I can imagine very quickly after the Tower of Babel, some of those groups would have taken up residence in caves on a temporary basis until they could establish their populations, maybe start planting fields and become agrarian uh, uh, civilizations, and so on. So what do you do when you're in a cave? Well, you write your story. You paint things that are of significance to you, and we find evidence of that all around the world today. All right, that was uh, great. Thank you to Graham who left that question on our Facebook page. Here's another one from Facebook before we take another call. A question from Gillian who says, I was trying to help or I am trying to help a non-believing friend navigate her way through the creation versus evolution debate at present. She is an evolutionist, very science-based in her thinking, but definitely searching. She's currently reading the Bible. Uh, She has said that DNA sequencing through the XX chromosomes and the fact that men are XY and women XX proves that man has come from a woman's womb, not Eve from Adam's rib. Can you please shed any light on this and help me help her? Yes, certainly. In fact, if you go to our website, creation.com, you'll find excellent articles on genetics, some in uh, really quite considerable depth. But uh, the observation is true. In our DNA, in in the cells rather in our body, there's uh, a little organelle called mitochondria. And there's a piece of DNA in the mitochondria which is inherited from our mothers. And geneticists have discovered that everybody living on the planet today came from one woman. And they call her somewhat tongue-in-cheek mitochondrial Eve. 
Now, the evolutionists don't believe there was just one woman. What they believe is that of all the women alive on the world, in the world at that time, only the descendants of that one woman have persisted and now cover the earth. Now, if you just think about that a little bit, I think that's an incredibly optimistic view and requires a lot of faith to hang on to that. But it's exactly consistent, isn't it, with what the Bible says, that there was one woman. But what about Eve coming from Adam's rib? You see, God made Adam first. He gave him the task of naming uh, the animals, and the purpose of that was for Adam to understand his need for a, a mate, a companion. So the Bible says God put him into a deep sleep, and uh, created Eve from his side, usually interpreted as meaning from his rib. So Eve came from Adam. Now that's very important because when Adam sinned, he was the head of all of humanity. Eve came from him, um, and so it was Adam's sin that brought death and suffering into the world. Not Eve being deceived by the serpent, but Adam's deliberate rejection of God. Thank you so much to Gillian for that Facebook question. And I have heard it said in past times uh, that this idea of mitochondrial Eve is one of the strongest evidences for the truth of the Bible. Uh, is that uh, that is one of those issues? If you want to bring up uh, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the Genesis account, uh, get an understanding of what it is to uh, to be able to talk about mitochondrial yeah. Eve. In, in fact, Neil, it gets even better because when you look at mitochondrial DNA, geneticists have discovered that uh, every human being fits into one of three subsets of that mitochondrial DNA, and they're very perplexed. Why? There are three basic subsets of mitochondrial DNA. But what does the Bible tell us? It says that after the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives and their descendants populated the whole of the earth. So there were three daughters-in-law of Noah. Each of those, presumably they weren't sisters, so they would have had a different um, uh, ancestry and therefore a different mutational pattern in their mitochondrial DNA. Here we are, another confirmation of the truth of the Bible's record of history. And as you say, it depends on the lens you are looking through. But when you look through a Bible truth lens, you'll see those things in a different light. And you'll even appreciate that where there are questions, uh, you can talk about mitochondrial Eve, but then uh, mitochondrial uh, wives of Shem, Ham and Japheth. And that actually adds more weight to the biblical argument. Absolutely. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. One of those conversations you wish you had lots more time for, but we are under some time constraint, just a few minutes remaining. Uh, Dr. Mark Harwood is our guest. We are taking calls 1-800-316-316. We might not get through all of them, but let's hear from Bill in Victoria. Hello, Bill. Welcome along. Bill, are you with us? Uh, Looks like we might have lost Bill. Let's take uh, another call. Tom is in Logan. Hello, Tom. Welcome along. Yeah, hi, um I was listening to uh, Dr. Chuck Missler the other night and he said some stars appear to be not receding but actually moving in an opposite direction to what you would expect with the Big Bang. Any um, elaboration on that? We'll need a quick response, but yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. The uh, stars that are receding from us, which by the, the way are the vast majority, are what's called red-shifted, but some are blue-shifted. And the blue shifting is because they are part of a local group that are actually spinning 
and temporarily on that side of that group they are approaching us faster than the whole group is receding. Um, but so, yes, you do see the occasional uh, galaxy and star that is blue shifted. Tom from Logan, thank you so much for your question. I want to come to the sorts of resources. When we talk a conversation like this, I don't want to leave everyone dangling. Uh, people can get support, resources, help with their their scepticism, their doubts, and Christian believers have this scepticism and this doubt as well. Creation.com, that's the website for Creation uh, Ministries. Uh, there's something in the vicinity of ten or 11,000 articles. Yes. Uh, how do you describe yeah. the, the value of that resource, Mark? Oh, look, it's absolute gold. Um, we have so many testimonies from people who uh, have just uh, had their questions answered, their faith built. Uh, an encouragement into you know to being able to believe that the word of God is true from the very beginning. I mean, it sounds obvious to say, but there's so much that impacts us in our culture that tries to undermine the most fundamental way God has revealed Himself to us, which is as Creator. And uh, so it's uh, just tremendously encouraging for people. Often, after I've spoken at a meeting, people will come up and say, "Oh, now I can believe it," you know, and it's it's really quite liberating. And for some, it's the blockage that keeps us quiet and Mm. keeps us from sharing our testimony, articulating this very simple yet profound message of the gospel. Uh, And if we're over some of those doubts and skepticism, we're going to have a whole lot more freedom in being able to share that message. That's right. And that was exactly my experience, Neil, as a young man. I couldn't share my faith effectively. I was an impotent Christian in that regard. Okay, well, let's point people to creation.com. Creation.com, where you'll find a tremendous resource, as many as 11,000 articles. So really, you're covering almost any question that anyone can come up with. In fact, I'm sure you'd be challenging people, uh, put this whole system through its paces, uh, go in there and do search on whatever you can think of, and you'll find uh, articles and uh, often scholarly articles that people can use, and they're credible when it comes to a science argument. A good place to start is the topics tab, and there's a whole range of topics that people can then explore. But, you know, Neil, it's not just science. Some of it is also philosophical. But, of course, theological, as we, our whole uh, mission is to see Jesus Christ honoured as creator and saviour of the world. And we make the point constantly that this, the reason we do this is because of the link to the gospel message. Those opening chapters of, of uh, Genesis tell us about the fall of man and the entry of suffering and death into God's very good creation. That he didn't leave us in the mess. He came in human form in the person of Jesus to pay the price for our rebellion against him and to, uh, to be the, the, the perfect substitute, the just for the unjust, so that we could go free. Uh, one last thing before we have to tie up our conversation. Uh, Creation Ministries has had a new film uh, that's been distributed. It's called Alien Intrusion. Uh, any sort of update for us, Mark? I mean, the popularity of the screenings, it's, it's been in some cinemas around the nation. Uh, it has. Yep. It has indeed. Um, a, couple, a week or so ago, it, it opened here in, uh, in Brisbane, and it was uh, to a packed house, uh, absolutely sold out. It's um, being screened in all of the, the states of Australia, all the capital cities, Um, for the remainder of this month and some screenings into March. If you go to creation.com, there's an alien intrusion tab. Just tick on that, uh, click on that rather, and uh, you'll find where all the screenings are. Well, it just demonstrates, doesn't it, the vast variety of issues that there are to face. Mm. Uh, It comes back to a simple representation of 
the gospel, uh, faith in God's word, the Bible, appreciation of Genesis as history, and uh, the ability then to be able to engage with the big issues that the world is facing Mm. that keeps them from putting their faith in Christ. Uh, Well, just want to say thank you so much to you, Dr. Mark Harwood, for taking some time. Uh, Always appreciate it when you're in town. Uh, Always look us up because these sorts of conversations are so valuable. Thank you so much for being with us today on 2020. And thank you for the opportunity, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.